Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, auditions for the Knife Doctor are go. And let's see who we got next. Oh, Matthew McConaughey. This should be interesting. All right, Matthew, whenever you're ready, give it a shot and go. That's what I like about these companions. I get older, they stay the same age. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, thanks, Matthew. That was fine. We'll call you. Lots of planets have a south. Yes, they do. That's enough, Matthew. You know, time is a flat circle. That one still works. Fuck off, Matthew. All right, all right, all right. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Doctor Is In. I'm your host, Paul Verhoeven, and this week we're going to be chatting with the head of the art department on Doctor Who, Michael Pickwode. So if you ever enjoyed the interior of the latest incarnation of the TARDIS, for example, or if you want to know how to convincingly build uh, the office of the White House so that maybe you can build a fake White House and put Trump in it and let him think he's president and just let him burn himself out, then Michael is the guy to go to, and I chatted with him uh, from London. Also this week, we are going to delve deep into the all-too-brief Christopher Eccleston run on Doctor Who. But first, it's time for Whose News Is It Anyway? First in news this week, Mark Gatiss has revealed that he almost put Ian McNeese's Winston Churchill into this week's episode. Now, on set in Morocco while shooting the last season of Sherlock, Gatiss says that he got a text from McNeese asking if his Winston Churchill character could make a comeback. Now, sadly, they couldn't find a way to put Churchill in. Though, if I'd known the way to almost get into Doctor Who was to simply text someone high up in the show, just actually, just hang on a sec. Here we go. Hello, Stephen. Can I please be the next doctor and sent? Fingers crossed. Oh, I got to reply. New phone, who this? Well, that didn't work. Next up in news, Alan Cumming. Alan Cumming has revealed to Graham Norton that he was offered and turned down the role of the Doctor twice. Now, he told Graham Norton that the prospect of living in Cardiff for eight months of every year was a deal breaker. Alan, you tit! If it's cold, get a house with a fireplace. Strap on your bow tie and get doctoring, damn it! Uh, what could have been? Anyway, now it's time to catch up with production designer of Doctor Who, Michael Pickwode. So Michael is the reason the TARDIS and the other amazing sets on the show even exist. He is the designer of the worlds in which the stories we love take place. I caught up with Michael over the phone from London. If I've worked in Australia a few times, I'm aware of the difference. <laughs> it's atrocious. Now, you guys are nine hours behind us, I think. So you're having a good morning, I assume, at this point? Yes, indeed, yes. Um, uh, we're well underway with the Christmas special. Oh, God, already. Oh, so you're way ahead of time. So uh, is it is it odd yes, working... Oh, God, if you, we, may, we may be behind you in time, but we're ahead of you in Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually wanted to um, delve in because, I mean, Michael, you're, you're a production designer, um, and just so people get an idea of the yep. sheer magnitude of what you do for Doctor Who... Uh, what is it that you actually do for the show in, you know, the specifics of what you do? Yeah, so what, what I mean, well, basically, I mean, having 
read the story and the script, it's working out what we just turned this up. Um, just what, um, how to deal with the story, what, because it's a mixture of you know, how much money you've got to build the wonderful things that get written. And you have to sort of try and work out something that's going to be quite dramatic, but possible to build. Do you find that restrictive or do you find that the, you know, if, if there's ever, if you ever have budgetary restrictions, as obviously I, you have to, do you find that helps the creative process? Well, strangely, I think actually, I think a lot of smaller films get made rather better than a lot of bigger films. <laughs> and I think if you have to think, I mean, it's like an artist sort to paint a picture, what does he do? You know, if you're given certain directions and certain limitations, you, you, your mind has to be honed more finely yeah. to um, be it to be able to, um, you know, to, to think carefully. And then often you come up with really what you need and then you discard what you don't need. Do you ever find that kind of affects the believability of a world that you're crafting? Um, well, I mean, the worlds are interestingly believable or unbelievable before you start. So you're off to a good or a bad start, depending how you, how you look at it. <laughs> the great thing is to make it understand, make it, if to make, I like to, want to make the audience not, really question anything, that you just buy into it. And you have to be quite careful with that if you try and do something too, too elaborate or too difficult to visually understand. There's not time in the storage to, to get into it. You want to, you know, you're, you're underlining everything in the story. You're lifting, you know, making the story, you're helping to make the story believable. Of course. And if people feel they understand rough, you know, although you might be in a very alien world, I often find it's more interesting to distort what you know, to become slightly... And let's face it, the physics of the whole universe must be roughly the same. Yeah. So, you know, if you're know, using the sort of metaphors, and also Doctor Who tends to have rather humanoid aliens, generally. So you, you're in a world that you sort of half understand, but you just want to make it nice and weird and peculiar. Right, right. And also elegant and hopefully, hopefully and, and gives a touch of sophistication here and there. Okay. So you're creating everything from alien marketplaces to, I guess you're also working with things like the interior of the Oval Office, for example, recently. Did you find that more or less, yeah, did you find that challenging uh, in, in a different way? Um, well, that's more of a, that's like going back to default, you might say. <laughs> right. Although, right, this is the second, this is the second Oval Office I've done. Mm. The first one was, um, in well, the first one in the first year I did in 2010, it was um, the Impossible Astronaut. Yes. And in fact, it was sort of nice. The, um, we had a, a BBC America where they were doing some filming, and they, they said, uh, and they said, oh, that your White House was better than West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can't tell if that's a compliment or a, well, I guess it is a compliment to you and a searing indictment of American politics. Does it, does it feel a little bit like you're losing a part of yourself? You're tearing down things that you've just built to make way for new things? Or have you gotten used yeah, to you, that? you sort of get used to it, yes. Right, right. Yes, 
you do. I mean, but if, if he gets a good showing, it's right. I shall be very sorry to be like the, um, at the end of this series. I mean, um, I should be leaving Doctor Who. I've done seven years of it, and I shall be very sorry to see the TARDIS come down. If they shoot. But I hope I won't be around when it does. Oh, that's heartbreaking. So it'll be like, oh, that's just heartbreaking. It, 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 it is the biggest and finest toy I've ever had to make. <laughs> Well, how much of that is... Are you ever hands-on, or do you just draw up blueprints and watch your minions scuttle about? Well, I'm I'm sort of hands-on. I mean, luckily, I did an engineering university, so I understand how to make things look like they should, and also how to set about building the Tubby Digital in steel, in fact, to give it the sort of engineering and sort of of high-tech look that it needed. Mm. And... No, that was so. I was quite hands-on in the time. You always, you know, I have people drawing up, but I stand behind them and I say, no, a bit more this way, a bit more that way, <laughs> you know. And um, I mean, I've got a quite a strong aesthetic, which I don't find is, is general. <laughs> so, I, you know, you look at something, that looks right or it looks wrong, and so you just got to keep adjusting things to make them. You know, you walk into walk into a set, you want to say, ah, oh, that's what it should be like. Right, right. So you can course correct pretty well, but have you ever done something and, you know, committed something? Like, let's say the TARDIS interior. Have you come back and looked at one of your designs and gone, I really wish I'd tinkered with this or that, or are you 100% happy when you push yeah, the boat out? Funnily, on, yes, occasionally on, on set, you think, oh, usually it's because if it had time, I'd have done something different, but it doesn't look too bad. Yeah. But TARDIS is actually virtually nothing. I would, it's hard. I've been in that hundreds and I'm often going there and sit on the stairs and I have to think of something. Oh. It's quite fun being in the TARDIS all by yourself. Yeah, and yeah. it's, but there's very little I would, if anything, I would have changed. I adore the bookcases we put in, <laughs> you know, for, for Peter Capaldi. I just wish we could have afforded to do the all way around. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's very, and actually the directors have become to love shooting because, I mean, everyone, no one does this, no one needs to do the same shot twice. It's got such scope in that. <laughs> It must be very strange working inside, you know, the TARDIS interior, at least conceptually from a plot point, because you can't change the outside of the TARDIS. Can you? Was, has that ever come up? No, no, that, well, that's... Um, it, what, actually, if you look, I mean, it's funny because we've in this Christmas special, I went into all the details, but there's a comparison of TARDISes, and um, if you look at the exteriors of the Earth, they've actually altered strangely. I mean, not, you know, 10% has... As they've differed in lots of different details yeah. over the years. And sometimes in some of the early episodes, they get different detail between shots, I have to say. Whereas <laughs> <So> I'm <laughs> going to go from location to studio, people seem to be an old, but however, that's, that's good old fashioned um, television filming. But um, no, so I think there are, there are a lot of, I think, very aficionados of um, Doctor Who who could take lectures, I think, on the changes in the next area of the TARDIS. Yeah, although that must be a slight... I don't know if it's a downside or an upside, but continuity is obviously part of your wheelhouse. Do you ever... I mean, do you ever have fans um, calling up and correcting you on things? Um, okay, you know what I mean? Not so much continuity in terms within the shop. Yes. It's fine. Often people say, oh, something shouldn't be this. And I think, well, actually, if they're watching that closely, we're doing quite well. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Well, okay, so... <laughs> Yeah, you've worked yeah. on you've worked on the TARDIS interior. You've worked on, God, everything from you know in, in the interiors of spaceships, not just the TARDIS. Are there any sets that you've been apart from the TARDIS that you've been particularly proud of, Michael? Well, yes, actually, I mean, there, I mean, the White House was a good one, the first one. Mm. This one wasn't bad, but we didn't have as much time to do it. Sure. But the, on this episode, the the Ice Fair and Black Friars Bridge set was, 
was quite fun, I have to say. So what what is it that makes a set fun for you? Is it the tiny details? No, is it, it, is it, was, it, was, it was the detail and the scope, because I, we had, you know, on this one, it's just being transmitted, the frost fair. I was saying that it's very hard to have a frozen river on the set and without a bridge, because you always know it's a river. <laughs> Yeah, that's very. And we, yeah. and we built part of an arch. We built a whole span of an arch. Right, it was about sixty percent the size of each. In reality, but it's sort of pretty big. And a bank, bit of the bank of the river, and some steps coming down. I don't know whether you saw that episode, but it had quite an operatic feel to it. And um, no, it was it was just, it was wonderful to be able to within our budget to get that scale and and actually fit it into the studio. It was actually fitted in beside the. Um, Beside the TARDIS, so the whole stage four was completely full of full of sets. They literally went right round beside it, round the corner, and then it was um, every inch of the stage was 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 used. And in fact, they're almost as big as when we did the we did Midsummer Night's Dream for the for the, for the BBC. For, um, and um, a couple of years ago, and that really filled the stage up. But no, no, it's it's um. It's that and that, um, oh, we've, I mean, I keep forgetting that each one gets sort of bigger and bigger this year. I mean, we've had him on the inside of pyramids and all sorts of bizarre things. The, um, the, the London, the Thames one, are you telling me that was on a soundstage? Because yes. I was convinced that that was outdoors. That's insane. Yes. No, no, that, that, that was on. And I, cause I remember thinking, how do we do ice? And then we were filming, oh, I was working on class earlier, and we were using the Pinewood in Wales studios. Mm-hmm. And they it was an old factory, and the floor was painted with shiny grey paint. And I said, this looks more like ice than ice. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just literally put, put boards, we put you know, smooth chipboard on the smooth MDF on the floor and painted it grey and varnished it. And it was, um, <laughs> unless you're told it wasn't ice, you'd believe it, because it's what it was meant to be. You know? I mean, it's, um, and it, and it really, really worked very well. That's insane, you're a wizard. So... I, I do have I do have a few I only have a few more questions, Michael. I, I confess this is somewhat amazing to me because now I'm worried that everything I've seen on TV is a lie, thanks to people like you. But I mean, what well, are you? Indeed, are we? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like you to just quickly talk me through. Let's go back to the TARDIS for a second. Um, talk me through how the hell do you even begin to design the interior of a TARDIS? What are your architectural inspirations? Do personal tastes of the actors that are playing characters ever what? cross your desk? Yes, that sort of, I mean, we adapted and, I mean, we, 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 that's why we put the bookcases in, actually, for Peter Capaldi's character, sure. but it was more academic, the old the sort of professor touch, mm-hmm. and so we made these rather nice bookcases. But then I made those, even when I did those bookcases, I thought, I'm not going to obscure the lamps on the on the, on, on the gallery, because that would be a real pity. <laughs> so I made them with the curves in it, which, of course, was very like the mid-18th century cabinet maker called William Kent, who did some furniture now that would be very valuable. So I thought, well, this, these bookcases are going to look like Robert one of his. So I, so I imagine that Doctor Who would have gone back to the 18th century, found this man and taken him to the gallery to build his cabinet. <laughs> so it gives you a, a sense of old and, sort of, you know, old and new at the same time. Yeah, yeah. They're quite high-tech in their look and quite, and quite sci-fi, yet at the same time their form it's, it's very traditional, which I find is quite a nice mixture. And indeed, the whole thing, the high tech, when it was when we started, I remember talking to Stephen Moffat at the very beginning, standing on the old TARDIS, 
in our previous studios. Mm. And he said, he, I said, I thought the new one should really look much more high-tech, like the Hadron Collider, which was just coming online at the time. Yeah. And he said, yes, what I'd really like, he said, what I said, I'd really like to look as though it could fly. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, right, here we go. And so we did it, and then I made the ball of wings on the top revolve. Every old species had all sorts of devices up in the air above their head, and nothing ever did anything. So I thought, about time this means something. So I sort of made it, made the, the made it look rather like a circular slide rule to compute time. <laughs> and I was, I was thinking it would be quite nice if all the wings, if the wings could go around opposite ways. The contrarotate, and I was looking at a microwave, and I was thinking, ah, oh, it's my James Watt moment. I thought, Ooh, if you held the metal, tr- if, you, if you held the glass dish still, the microwave would go backwards, and then we worked out how we could put, put rollers in and one motor, and it turned the whole lot. Wow. And it's it's quite funny because everyone said, oh, it's noisy. We don't want to use it, but it's got used more and more and more <laughs> because it's quite fun. It just adds. It adds another, Everyone thinks it's CGI, but it's not. It actually, they actually turn themselves. So what is the what is the fate of these incredible mechanisms? Like what what happens once they you know take this artist down? Are you going to steal these things, take them home, and have them in your well, living room? I suppose, <laughs> well, I, I think we might not have quite the space for it. But I think probably um, worldwide, it'll probably depending on where they have that museum in the future. I'm sure they will, or I'm sure someone might want to buy it. You never know. It's a much more of a good garden pavilion. <laughs> oh well, maybe I'll maybe I'll try and get a loan and figure that out. I have um, just one last question for you, Michael. Um, what's it like building something, creating an environment, and then watching performers play in it? Do you watch to see? Do they ever give you a nod of gratification, or is is your is yeah? Yes, yeah, so oh, oh, after, after I mean, um, um Nardo, um, he, he, wrote, he always, I call him, sorry, calling him Nardo, I can't remember, and Matt Lucas, they're, they're often saying how nice and well, not at the actors at all, which is great fun, you know, which is, which is, which is rather, often you forget sometimes that you've actually built it, <laughs> and you assume it to be real, and so they realise it's not. Especially when you build things on location, and you alter locations in the past, I've done that. I built a railway, and I thought, my God, why didn't I come by train when I got to the city? You can do things in the right way. It's just getting the elements that tell you where you need elements that just tell you exactly where you are. Things that jog, you know, convince you. So, no, it's it's, it's great fun. Well, you know, I'm I'm sorry you're leaving. What's what's next for what's next for Michael Pickwood? Like, where are you headed next? Well, I'm going to. Well, next I'm going to be working on it. Well, I was sort of leaving because I, in a way, I felt that not like wanted to leave. But it was great fun. But done seven years of it, and Stephen Moffat's leaving, and the whole new sort of team starting up again. Mm. And I thought, well, I've done enough. I think, and it's been. I'm not, I'm not sure how many more ideas in that line I've got left. <laughs> it's it's um, because it's. You know, it's it's it, you're constantly. I never. I often say I've never had a job where I've had to think so continuously, imaginatively. It's like every moment of the day, you've got to think up a new idea of how, oh, how do we do this, how do we do that. Which I have to say, keeps the mind young, if nothing else. <laughs> but I'm, I'm I'm about to work on the on um, a new a new um, serial for um, with Stephen Polikoff. So you're going to be you're going to be busy. You're just not going to be creating the inside of spaceships for a while. Be busy. Well, it's been quite nice to be kept. 
I managed to be, to be kept busy, yes. And also, it's, well, nothing, nothing in the film world is ever straight. The more you think something is straightforward, the less straightforward it always becomes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to miss you. You've done an incredible job. I, I confess, I, I'm going to sulk when I see a TARDIS without you having designed it. So thank you for ruining TARDISes for me. <laughs> I, but, but this one may not get, this may, I'm not sure what, whether they can afford to this, so you may all cost a lot of money these things, but however, it has been, it has been enormous, a great privilege to do it. I sort of thought, how am I going to, when I was asked to do it, I thought, you know, how am I going to manage this? I thought, I might just do a series, and I seem to have done six series of Christmas, you know, and the 50th anniversary. <laughs> That's been quite a, quite a ride. You've done a bloody wonderful job, and uh, and thank you so much for doing it. And uh, and thank you for chatting today. By the way, you've been an absolute delight, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. No, because I, I must. Oh, that's lovely. Like, I must say, I must add that when I very first started, mm. and we went to a location, the Clearwell Caves, and we didn't use them, we could have used them. And we sat down for a cup of tea, and the little boy on the table next door had a sonic screwdriver in his hand. And I thought, oh my God, we can't let them down, can we? It's <laughs> <laughs> when you realise, it's quite useful to realise the popularity of this programme. I mean, it's extraordinary. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, and you've contributed to a pantheon of work which is never going to die. So that's, that's an incredible achievement. Which is, that is, that is uh, very rewarding. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. No, no. Anyway, well, very nice to talk to you, yes. Thank you, Michael. And enjoy, enjoy finishing the Christmas special. I will indeed, yeah. This week in Doctor Who Cliff's Notes, look, Doctor Who hadn't been on TV properly for 16 years, okay? The year was 2005, and just to give you a bit of context, I was at university studying film, being a pretentious, awful little dirtbag with dyed red hair and leather cuffs and eyeliner and nail polish. It was a dark time, and I was watching Legopolis on VHS in the back room at a house party with a bunch of like-minded theatre buddies when suddenly the news dropped about a new series of Doctor Who with Christopher Eccleston, who at that point I knew was the bad guy from 28 Days Later. I was sold, and the series was brilliant. It was helmed by uh, showrunner Russell T Davies, who made Queer as Folk, and it brought to the fore what the new series of Who was going to be about when it was at its best, and that is people. You know, thrusting this intergalactic character, the Doctor, in with people, real people, and making him get to know them, and watching him get tangled up with their friends and their families, and, you know, watching him get attached to these small people on this small world while still privately reeling after having to wipe out the Time Lords and Daleks all at once. That's right. Thanks to the new incarnation of the Doctor, thanks to Eccleston's Doctor, we found out almost straight away that Eccleston's wonderful and charming and haunted Doctor was the survivor of the Great Time War. Now, it is fascinating, just for a moment, to compare Russell T Davies and Moffat by how their Doctors deal with trauma. Trauma that the showrunner in question actually, you know, came up with. So Eccleston and Tennant had the PTSD of a reality-ending war and losing their entire species, and they dealt with that PTSD by immersing themselves in, you know, friends and the love of a singular human being. Moffat's Doctor had sporadic, irritating encounters with Moffat creations, namely Riversong and Amy Pond, and uh, he, the Doctor dealt with those things by spending decades in seclusion mourning. Just let that sit for a minute. I think it speaks a great deal to how both showrunners view their legacy on the show. One wanted to carry on the spirit of the show and get on with things, and one wanted to commandeer it and make it about his creations. It makes you think, doesn't it? If you could see my face right now. Anyway, thinking that's what the Ecclestons... That's what the Ecclestons... That's... 
of the New Hampton Ecclestons. That is what Eccleston's ninth doctor did. You know, he forced himself into the lives of people and he made them think. He made us think. You know, Rose became the eyes through which we viewed this insane, wonderful show and the fact that it had, you know, finally come back. And, and she helped us understand Doctor Who especially for those of us who'd never seen the show before. You know, we learned again, like relearned, how to flinch and squeal with excitement every time the noise of the TARDIS was heard. Not wince, because some buffoon might come leaping out of it. Anyway, he was a charismatic, and he was a smart, and he was a capable doctor. And he didn't bumble through things. He didn't accidentally... You know, he, he didn't... He wasn't accidentally great and successful. He was great and successful. He knew what he was doing. He blazed through the universe with... I guess intent is the word. You know, he he ran around righting wrongs because accidental greatness isn't heroism. And if accidental greatness is how you get by for millennia, it becomes implausible and it undermines a show like this. The Ninth Doctor proved that the Doctor was what we thought he was all along, you know, ever since the show was cancelled. We thought he was a being of supreme intelligence and kindness who, like, stubbornly refused to stop trying to fix things, even if it killed him. And he knew what he was doing, because if a Doctor accidentally heals you, he's not a Doctor, he's a quack. And Eccleston's Doctor was anything but. He was so capable. And because he only did one season, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to recommend, because normally at the end of Cliff's Notes, I recommend select episodes to watch. And because you have one season of Eccleston, here's my recommendation. Watch it all. And if you've watched it before, watch it again. Watch the whole thing, front to back. There are some weak moments, but not many. And you will meet Rose, who I love. I will fight you if you don't. Uh, You'll meet her flaky, sometimes boyfriend, Mickey, who genuinely turns into something wonderful as the show goes on. You'll meet, oh, oh crap, I forgot about Captain Jack Harkness. I could talk about him for ages. He's amazing. You'll meet Harriet Jones. You'll meet Jackie. A A slew of sublime characters. It's a magical season, and you need it in your life. Now, because we've just finished talking about Eccleston, that means that next week we get to talk about pretty much my favourite Doctor. Oh, David Tennant, you bloody dreamboat. Oh, I'm going to sit here sighing for 30 minutes now. What a dish. Well, it's that time of the episode where we have to finish the episode. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Doctor Is In. Thank you so much to production designer of Doctor Who, Michael Pickwood, who, as you heard in the interview, is retiring, which is, you know, it's good to hand the torch over, but God, it was a nice torch, wasn't it? Just so lovingly crafted and constructed. It's, it's been a real delight watching Michael's sets. Just sit there and watching people run around in them. It's always hard to compliment somebody in production because their job is seemingly abstract but also totally vital. So thank you very much, Michael, uh, for joining me on the show. We have another amazing guest coming up on the podcast next week. Really excited about this one. And obviously, uh, make sure you hop onto Twitter and uh, you know, hook me a tweet. Let me know what you think of the show. It's at TDIIPod. If you haven't already, feel free to hop across to iTunes and leave a rating and a review uh, on the podcast. And also, you can listen to this podcast on the Stitcher app if you are listening on Android. There's heaps of ways to show your love, and I also hope you're enjoying this season of Doctor Who. If you have any fan theories or conspiracies, don't forget to tweet at me, and I will see you next week for another crisp, shiny episode of... Uh, of the Doctor is in. Again, I never script these endings. I really should. If you can think of a good outro for these episodes, just like a pippy rejoinder, then please tweet one at me because I need a way to finish these that doesn't involve trailing off like this. Pull the lever, idiot.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.